Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music Podcast. Today, I speak with Adrienne trier Beanick about her book, Sing Us a Song, Piano Woman, Female Fans, and the Music of Tori Amos. Our conversation explores how Tori's fans make sense for music and use it for healing. We also examine the world of pop music fandom through a feminist perspective. Well, um, I'm so glad you're talking with us today, and um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book? Sure. Well, I am a uh, sociology uh, academic. My PhD is in sociology, although I I would think that it probably would stem closer to gender studies than anything else. And I have spent most of my academic career studying gender, and specifically for a long time it was violence against women, um, and then eventually it turned into kind of the cultural appropriation of violence. I started to I wrote this book because uh, it was the product of my dissertation, which I wanted to understand how um, fans of Tori Amos used her music as a means to help them heal after they'd experienced trauma, and to also kind of look at the fem- more feminist aspects of her music and of her songs. So um, the book was a happy byproduct of uh, the dissertation research that I had done. Well, great. Well, one thing that, that really struck me as I was uh, reading through it and I think gives a sense of, of how Tori and her music is just a little bit different than some other pop music, is just what, what the scenes are like at her concerts. So can you maybe explain a little bit what, what a concert is like? Yeah. A lot of people refer to it as Tori Church, that it's not so much – it is a rock concert. It's definitely rock music. Um, but there is a almost um, calming or zen-like vibe that kind of floats around a Tory concert. And people go as much to hear songs that they enjoy played and to kind of rock out. Um, it's equal to hearing songs that have really helped them or have really touched them in some way. Um, it's more like... Uh, you know, when you go to a typical rock show, people stand and they sort of dance. And that happens at Tory shows, of course. But for the most part, she comes out, she waves to the audience, she sits down at the piano, and then the audience sits down. And you sort of experience it more like a symphony hall or a um, classical music concert than you would a typical rock show. And I think a lot of that is because people are there more to go on that journey with her of the songs she's selected. Every night she picks different songs to play. And um, a lot of times those songs are uh, mirrors of what is happening in the world in that moment. So um, a really easy example was after um, Kurt Cobain killed himself, she actually, I think it was a couple nights later, played in an old church in the UK somewhere, uh, a show, and she covered Smells Like Teen Spirit. And, you know, it still is listed as one of the most haunting moments in rock history. Um, that's the kind of stuff she does. She likes to mirror what is happening in the world into her concerts. And that's what makes them a little bit different. Each night the set list is different depending on what is happening in her life, in, in the city she's in, in the world she's in, all of that. Well, I also get the impression that it's not just um, kind of how the audience responds, but even how she interacts with her audience. And um, I yeah. was surprised to learn that she has a lot of interaction with her audience. Yeah, it's amazing. She does meet and greets before every show. So anybody can show up. Um, Sometimes it depends on the the length of the line, if you get to see her or not. But uh, the theory is that anybody can show up before a concert 
uh, at the venue at the stage door and she'll come out in the afternoon and she meets with as many people as she can and talks with them and takes on requests and hears their stories and takes their letters and sometimes people bring gifts and just interacts with her fans. And it's, you know, I'm not sure how many people do this. I would venture a guess that it's not a lot of people before every single concert take time to meet with fans and it's free. Um, you don't pay anything. It's not an extra ticket. Um, in the past, I, I know people have done kind of a paid meet and greet or you had to be on a special list. Um, Tori doesn't do that. Tori, it's very much you, if you want to meet her, you show up. And if time allows, you will get to the front and you will get to talk to her, uh, which is crazy. There's not a lot of people that do that. Or I don't even know if there's a lot of people that would want to do that because it's, you know, a lot out of her day. Well, in the course of your study, you spoke with a lot of fans. Um, what did you learn about the fans? Um, who are they and, and why are they interested in her music? Tory fans are a wonderful, eclectic, um, f- fun group of people that the reason I wanted to do this study, one of the reasons I wanted to do this study was because especially with women and female fans, they get late crazy or um, uh, really overzealous in how they act and the way they what they say and how they behave at shows you know they get crazy and they throw things on stage and they cry and they lose all sense of emotion and just faint or pass out and of course that happens but it almost has become a stereotype of what a female fan is and what she's interested in in her music that she only wants a hot guy on stage performing for her or a woman on stage thinking about uh, losing love because um, that really is what's important to women is to find love. And Tory fans really challenged that, especially the women I spoke with. They are more interested um, in music that helps define them. Um, they're more interested in music that, that speaks to their experiences, what they've been through and while you can certainly get that from traditional pop music, um, Tori goes beneath the surface on it. And most of her fans are um, excited by songs that tell a story and that make them think and that you don't get everything at face value. You have to actually peel apart the layers of the song in order to understand what she's saying but a lot of times um, what she's saying may not be how the fan perceives the music because it is poetry. It is written in kind of a more dense form. And because it does that, because the songs do that, it draws people in and makes them really have to sit down and ponder. I had a lot of people say that when they got a new album, and for a lot of people this was before iTunes, although I still buy CDs. I don't know how many people do. Um, a lot of people, when they would get an album, would sit down with the lyrics and listen to the album and read the lyrics at the same time to make sure that they got the lyrics right. And then they could contemplate what they had heard. Yeah. Well, what a, one interesting thing uh, that I learned is that, um, Tori almost has a, a fan among uh, wrestlers. I think I saw <laughs> you've written about uh, Mick Foley and, and Tori Amos. Yeah. <laughs> Mick, <laughs> Uh, Mick is an amazing human being. He um, is a professional wrestler. The hardcore legend is what he's called. I've learned a lot of new WWE lingo in the last year of interacting with him that I would never have thought I would be saying before. Um, Mick got is inspired by Tori's music 
it, he's written um, in his book, Countdown to Lockdown, uh, about how he would use it to get him pumped up before a show. Um, he Particularly the song Winter, he's written about meeting Tori and kind of the weak need moment that we all have when we're standing in front of her. Um, he's a true fan. He's, he's really in it to talk about being a fan. Um, but he's also an incredible philanthropist and not in the sense that he um, which is there's nothing wrong with that there, there's nothing wrong with giving money to an organization everybody needs it there's absolutely nothing wrong with it but Mick takes it one step further so he has volunteered for rain and has worked the website um, uh, working with survivors of sexual uh, abuse and incest he has um, donated uh, his time to mow the lawn of people who donate a certain amount of money to Rain, which I thought was wonderful uh, to have McFoley mowing your front lawn. He has just done a lot. He every year auctions off, or I don't know if it's every year. I'm sorry if I'm miscommunicating that. But for the last few years, he's um, tried to raise money for Rain through um, WWE weekends. So he has ran raffles and different things where the proceeds go to Rain. Last year, he raised over $100,000 for them. Um, so he is an amazing human being who really took Tori's music and is inspired by it and tried to figure out how he can use use it to um, help other people. Uh, he he. As a side note, he does uh, little um, comedy shows now. And if you get a chance to go, I cannot recommend it enough. Even if you're like me and you know nothing about wrestling, it's fascinating. It's fast, and the and the people who show up are lovely and fascinating. So, well, you, you, you <laughs> go to McFoley. <laughs> when you mentioned uh, McFoley, you talked about Rain, and there might be some people listening to the podcast who aren't who don't know what Rain is. So, could you maybe explain that a little bit? Yeah, Rain is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, and it um, was Tori is a co-founder of it. So, the way that the story goes, and I could be getting some of the details wrong because things get passed on and. Um, stuff sometimes gets missed. But the way the story goes is that around 93, 92, Tori was on tour and she would meet meet fans before a concert. Uh, one fan came up to her before the show and said, um, my father raped me last night and he's going to rape me tonight. And can I get on the tour bus with you and um, join the tour because I don't want to go home. And Tori has said, you know, that her first reaction was, yes, get on the bus. And then the people around her said, we can't do this. It's illegal to transport this person at the time she was under 18 um, across state lines. And she said, I don't care. Put this person on the bus and we'll figure it out. And her afterthoughts with that was that it is insane that there is not a place or a, a, a organization that could help these people that are um, a, coming up to her before and after shows and talking about their experiences being sexually assaulted. Um, and that B, that after they t talk to her, they're just sort of stuck. You know, where do you go from there? So she got together with organizers and started RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And it is a 800 number um, that anybody can call. And uh, it will connect you to a counselor and you can... Um, talk to a person, an actual trained professional, uh, about whatever has happened to you, and they will connect you with resources. Well, this really kind of connects us to really, I think, the main emphasis of the book, which is uh, the relationship between Tori, Tori's music and the healing that fans experience. So can you maybe uh, 
just kind of share a little bit about, about how that healing happens. Yeah. Most of the people I spoke with, uh, there was a common thread of healing with most of the women I spoke with that uh, they were healing from sexual or physical abuse, um, eating disorders, miscarriages, uh, really, really terrible relationships with their fathers, which was something that was revealed in the data that kind of surprised me. I wasn't anticipating that. Um, and that Tori's music was how they were getting through it. Um, some of the stories and some of the things that people shared with me were that the music was there when nobody else was or that they could put on the music and sort of escape and feel comforted. A lot of the people took the lyrics and really kind of shaped them into their own um, personal mantras. Uh, a few people would talk about how uh, they would sit and listen to the music and play the songs over and over and over again to kind of make them feel like they weren't so alone or that somebody else understood what they were going through. And it was safe. It was something that they were experiencing by themselves and that there was some sort of um, safety in that. It was interesting because most of them did something while they were listening to music. So healing took place one through the music and two through some sort of action that they were doing. So they would write or draw or paint or some people would dance um, but there was some sort of physical activity going on with the music as they were listening to it to help them heal. You know, uh, I know in the in, in your book you talk about the song uh, "Me and Me and the Gun." You talk about precious mm -hmm. things. Um, how do can maybe walk our audience through how the healing works in like one of those one of those kinds of songs? So, "Me and a Gun" was a song Tori wrote about her own um, sexual assault, and it sung a cappella. And for years. She ended the concert singing at acapella. Um, Me and a Gun has kind of become a um, mantra or an entrance into Tori's music for a lot of people because it's a song that's very specifically and explicitly about being, uh, being sexually assaulted. And for a lot of people, that's jarring to hear a song that's talking about rape. Um, but for people who have been raped, it has sort of a, um, a healing component to it. Someone else has experienced this. Someone else gets it. Someone else knows what I was thinking. And then they can use the song uh, to kind of guide that healing process. Precious Things was, is kind of a similar um, theme, although Precious Things is a rock song. Uh, but it has this theme of uh, uh, no one understands me. People don't get who I am. Even the person I'm dating or sleeping with doesn't get who I am. And um, I am going to uh, take what I have about me that's precious, and I'm going to celebrate that and kind of uh, set aside the rest of this. That's my interpretation of it. I know if you ask uh, another Tory fan, they're going to have a whole other interpretation of it. But from what I gathered from listening to people talk, that seems to be a common notion. It, do do Tory fans find um, healing also in the community that's kind of built around <laughs> in a, built around Tory, um, or is it just the lyrics? Oh, it is definitely. Oh, it is definitely a community. Uh, the thing that Tory fans call themselves a couple of different things. So we have ears with feet, and we have Tory files. Uh, that is the community name. Um, I'm not clear on uh, what uh, other bands use as their kind of 
token names for their fans, but Tory, Tory fans are very clear. We have Ears With Feet or EWF and Tory Files. The community that people have built around her music is incredible. And um, it is like something out of uh, just, you know, social networking before it was social networking. So for a lot of years, we had The Dent um, that was a website created by a guy named Mike Y. And it was the Tory place in the 90s and the 2000s. It was the place you would go and you would read everything that you wanted to know about Tory. Anything that was printed about her was posted on there. It was a really kind of cool website. And then there was message boards and forums and places where you could talk and interact with people. Um, and then that closed down and we got undented, which sort of picked up the, the baton and did the same thing. Um, but Tory fans have been using the internet to connect with each other and then going off and seeing multiple shows with each other for quite some time. And it's great. I mean, it's, we're talking pre Facebook, pre Twitter before, you know, you could send out one message and 5,000 people would see it. Um, the people have been kind of using a Tory show as a way to convene and meet with each other. Um, there used to be Tory cons where um, the money that was raised for, or the convention was given to rain and people would get together and um, do things Tory related. Uh, there was for a while different groups that would um, make different t-shirts and things that said like ears with feet on them so that you could identify yourself when you went to a show and you could buy those and wear them to shows so people could kind of spot each other in different concerts. Uh, now in the last few years, there's been some really cool advances uh, where people have used Facebook and Twitter to raise money for Rain um, in the name of Tori. So the last year, two years ago, for her 50th birthday, um, there was some really cool fundraising efforts that were happening where people would donate stuff to an organization and they would in turn uh, raffle it off and raise money for um, Rain through that. Tori fans are incredible. They don't just listen to this music and um, take it in for themselves. They try, I think, at least in my observation, they really do try and find other people that experience her music. And they also, a lot of them make an effort to uh, use this music to help other people. So a lot of them donate to Rain or have created um, things that they could sell and give the money to Rain or have created their own um, organizations to help survivors of sexual violence or physical abuse. It's incredible and amazing that people get so inspired by this music that they not just want to help themselves, but they want to help other people's people too. Now it's interesting. Um, you know, the word feminist has been, uh, sometimes been sort of a kind of a, a dangerous word in American culture, but I'm hearing what you're describing and it seems like it's that Tori is sort of, um, a feminist icon creating a feminist movement. Um, do her fans see her in that way and do they identify themselves as feminists? Yes. Um, so something like 73% of people I spoke with, um, identified as feminist and also saw Tori as a feminist. I think it's unfortunate that we get so caught up in that word and all of the loaded connotations that people have placed on it that usually have nothing to do with feminism. Um, because what she's doing is she's empowering women and men to go beyond what they're taught um, is appropriate for men and women. Uh, and feminism often gets attached just to um, women, which rightfully so. But we forget that it's patriarchy that feminism is speaking out against. 
against not men, but what patriarchy does to men and women. Um, quite a few women on their own before me even having to ask would start an interview off by talking about feminism. I remember one woman, Haven, when I interviewed her, I think my first question was something like, um, what comes to your mind when you think of Tori's music? And she said, well, what comes to my mind is feminism because I don't think you can listen to Tori's music and not be a feminist. And I, that was a fairly common reaction that in some way, on some level, everybody got that there was feminist activism, activism, activism happening, that there was a feminist identity among the women that I was speaking to and that Tori's music was very, very distinctly and markedly feminist. Um, you know, how connected uh, is Tori's music and her fans to um, other uh, kind of feminist uh, pop music movements, um, stuff like Lilith Fair, Riot Girls, Annie DeFranco, uh, Fiona Apple, um, any of those kinds of artists or, or movements? Most people that listen to Tori um, listen to one of the people you just mentioned, um, Fiona Apple, Annie DeFranco, Regina Spector came up a lot. Uh and I think that's because there's a similar theme with all of those musicians, right? That there's definitely an empowerment thing happening, but there's also a willingness to um, talk about their lives and their experiences in a way that's quite honest. That part to me, I think, is what draws a lot of especially women in, that it's a very honest discussion of somebody, another woman's life, and they're talking about things that you normally – uh, wouldn't talk about. Not a lot of people would. Uh, Tori made a record in uh, 98 called From the Choir Girl Hotel, which m mainly, by and large, discussed her experiences with miscarriage. Uh, not a lot of people would make an entire album um, to address how horrible somebody feels after they've had not just one, but a couple of miscarriages. And to, for most women, and that is an incredible thing to have access to if you've experienced that or if you're going through it. So a person like Fiona Apple or Regina Spector, I think even Alanis Morissette would fit in there, and Annie DeFranco, they're kind of the exception to the rule that one of the things we don't get a lot in pop music, especially with female um, musicians, is this willingness to go a little dark and a little deep and to go beyond um, just – not that songs about love aren't important, but women are often taught that, you know, finding a husband um, and finding a man is what is the most important thing you can do, which is extremely hegemonic and not very helpful if you have other interests. <laughs> so these musicians speak to that, but I think they're the exception. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, the reasons why I was interested in having you, you on the podcast is um, I think your work really challenges um, a lot of what's gone on in pop music scholarship and how pop music scholars have viewed politics. Um, you know, they kind of view it through punk or through right. you know, discrete kind of um, m movements or moments. How do you see the politics of what Tori's doing um, among, among her fans? Um, it's an interesting question. I think that one of the things that we get caught up in in pop music scholarship is that everyone's experience is the same, um, that everybody, men and women, fans, uh, audience members, 
that our experience with, with music is the same, that if a person is singing about something that men and women are going to feel the same thing. Uh, I think that Tori challenges that. And I think she says, you know, that women's lives and women's experiences have often sort of been put on the back burner in music. And that that means you're kind of neglecting half of the population. So when she addresses that, and I think is very feminist about the way she addresses it, um, I think that that makes people uncomfortable, but is extremely necessary. It also seems like there's been a disproportionate attention um, on like Lady Gaga or Madonna. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know, maybe you can you think a little bit about that out loud about why there's been so much focus on those acts, um, but maybe not some of these acts that we've been talking about, like, you know, Andy DeFranco, yeah. Gita Spector and Tori and these kind of people. You know, I was, I, I grew up in the eighties and the nineties. So Madonna is a very near and dear person to my heart. <laughs> um, however, I get it. And I, you know, Lady Gaga is an interesting, it's funny that you bring her up. She's an interesting soul to me because she very much has the potential to write these kind of interesting multi-layered songs, but they seem to be a little more sporadic and consistent. Um, and she definitely really does want to improve the world through like the Born This Way Foundation and stuff. But what I see with with uh, a lot of pop music, I'm actually thinking like, um, heaven help me, like Taylor Swift, um, <laughs> that uh, they do great songs to make you feel pumped up and certainly on some level empowered. And they're great to run to. Uh, and they're, you know, certainly they have their place. Pop music will always have its place. Uh, but it's the surface. It's not what's happening um, underneath and what Tori and Ani and a lot of these other performers that we addressed do is they scratch that surface and go below it and start to get into, okay, so I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like I can take on the world. Now what happens and what happens when I fail or what happens when somebody um, doesn't want me to uh, advance in whatever way? How do I go beyond that? Um, that to me is one of the major differences. And, you know, Madonna has always had her place. She always will. And she's done, you know, quite a few albums that start to go below that surface. And for some people, maybe it does. That's kind of the interesting thing about music, right? That I'm sitting here saying that maybe Madonna needs to scratch a little bit more further beneath the surface. I think she definitely did that with Ray of Light. Um, but then she kind of does a 180 and we go back to candy shops and, um, (laughs) do you know, cheerleader outfits and that kind of thing. So I I don't know if this is quite right, but is, is, did Madonna clear space for someone like Tori? You know, could have Tori Amos had the career that she's had without Madonna's success? I think, in the book, I talk about um, uh, the kind of the work of Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the women from 70s, uh, 60s and 70s music as people who have maybe paved more of a way for female artists just in general. Um, I tend to think of that more as the trail being blazed. That said, uh, Madonna did a lot business-wise 
for women in music. You know, if you watch older, um, you can find YouTube video clips of her in the 80s where she, um, I don't know if it was a convention she was at or a music conference, but she was actually speaking on a panel with Duran Duran. And they were saying, um, you know, that they don't like that music has to have a video now and that, uh, that it just doesn't make any sense that if you're a musician, you shouldn't have to make a music video. And she said, well, what's the difference between me putting a camera on you on stage and recording it and playing it on television and you making a music video? Both of those are still performances. I think Madonna did a lot for um, music in, in terms of industry and kind of breaking through some of those barriers. But a lot of it was done um, through very typical feminine ways. And the women we're speaking about have benefited from that, but they've also benefited from um, the Joni Mitchells of the world and um, those artists that came before that maybe didn't fit into that same mold. Yeah. Um, your, your book uh, employs a number of sort of academic theories to help make sense of Tori Amos and the interviews you did. Um, yeah. You use both a feminist standpoint theory and social interaction theory or symbolic interaction theory. Symbolic interaction. Yeah. Um, can you maybe, uh, maybe, maybe offer a brief introduction to people who maybe are going to go pick up the book, but maybe aren't familiar with those terms? So feminist standpoint theory, um, usually for me at least, was used as a research, uh, a way to guide my research. Essentially, it means that we place the experiences of women um, at the forefront of a study that we're doing because traditionally women have either been left out of research or have only been studied in very, very small groups. So, you know, you'll look at a study and you'll see um, 50 people were interviewed, of that 10 were women. Uh, so feminist standpoint theory sort of says that we need to make a conscious effort to bring women's stories to the forefront, and then once we have them, to honor them in some way. And to kind of uh, think about how... Uh, when someone is being interviewed or when someone is a part of your research, how that is going to affect them. So a few of the things I did to uh, before I interviewed people was I said, I can stop anytime you need me to. Um, if you say something and, I'm, and you're not comfortable with what you have said or you want to take it back or something just doesn't feel right, just let me know and we can omit it from your transcript. And I really wanted to make sure that that, uh, that they knew that this wasn't about me getting information from them. This was about a conversation. And if there was a part of that conversation they weren't comfortable with, I was fine with uh, taking it out. I also, before I interviewed people, most of my interviews were done over the phone. And before I interviewed people, I um, pulled up on Google uh, crisis hotlines and counseling counselors in their area, <laughs> excuse me, or organizations in their area that would help them uh, if the interview started taking a turn that um, made me think maybe somebody needs more help. I'm not a counselor and I'm not a therapist and I certainly couldn't offer that to someone. So part of feminist standpoint was doing just that was honoring the stories that were coming to you and um, placing women's experiences at the forefront. And can you, before you move on to symbolic interactionism, <coughs> do you see that um, in pop music that most of the fan studies tend to be focused on men or or that they tend to leave women out? What's your sense of what's what's happened in the past? I don't think it's a focus. I don't think it's an intentional focus on men. I really don't. I think that most researchers aren't taught to see those differences, just like most researchers aren't necessarily taught to see 
um, that there's a disproportionate number of people uh, racially um, in studies or um, via sexual orientation or any of that stuff. Most people are just taught to do research. And because we live in a dominantly patriarchal society, most research comes across um, through that lens. I don't think it's something that we consciously do. But I think in fan studies, particularly in audience studies and pop music studies, that we tend to apply the notion that what works for men works for women. Um, so there's a great book uh, called Tramps Like Us. I can't say the man's last name. I know you can. <laughs> um, Cavici, I think. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, he did a study of Bruce Springsteen fans. And when I was writing my dissertation, he uh, his book was a nice um, guide because it was sort of somebody who had kind of done what I had did. But in the book, he mentions that when he would interview women, that and that he had very few interviews with women. And one of the reasons why was when he would talk to them, he would get the sense that they weren't necessarily wanting to open up to him about what made this music personal. And he felt like if he were a woman, that that may have been different. And the fact that he was honest about that in this book that a lot of us have read um, who prepare to do this work, the fact that he was so honest about that is wonderful because, I mean, it's true and it's um, it's something to be conscious of. And it's not to say men can't interview women, women can't interview men, uh, but it's something to be aware of how your presence impacts the person that you're speaking with um, is something we don't think about. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of studies done on um, gender within music and fan communities. So um, because I am not a trained sociologist, uh, you use the term symbolic interactionism. What is that and how does that apply to this kind of study? A really easy way to think about symbolic interaction is how we apply meaning to um, things, to objects, in this case to music lyrics. Um, It's... I used it to try and understand how and why the songs were having such an impact on people, on the women I spoke with. But I also wanted to couple it with feminist standpoint because I was not only trying to understand how the the lyrics and the songs had an impact, but how they had an impact from a very distinct gendered place. So um, I use symbolic interaction to help guide me um, in understanding why a song fit, how a song helped with healing, what part of a song or what lyrics from which song connected to emotions, and if they were common songs that people were referencing to talk about an emotion, to talk about experiences. Um, so once, now that you're done with your study and you finished the book, what are some of the conclusions that you reached? I, you know, the big one, and I, I think maybe I didn't emphasize this enough in the book, Um, The big one is that we need more studies on gender in fan communities and in music communities, and it's fairly limited, Um, especially since I don't think that the experiences that I addressed in my book are universal. I think that um, we need to keep pulling back layers of why women, uh, especially women, connect to music and what types of music they're listening to. I think that we have a lot to learn from how gender is impacted by pop music. I was at, um, in Orlando, I I live in near Disney World, and so um, Epcot every year has a concert 
it's called Eat to the Beat, where you can go and there's a food festival. And then you can also go and listen to different bands from the 80s and 90s perform on stage. And, um, you know, they have like Wilson Phillips comes and Smash Mouth and Sugar Ray. Uh, and, and on Sunday night, I found myself at a Hanson concert. <laughs> and I'll just let that sink in. <laughs> For a minute, <laughs> my friends, my friends Catherine and Bethany are huge fans, and I wanted to go because I every year I find Hanson to be kind of a fun concert to go to. I never thought I would say that as a 34 adult year old adult, um, but I'm fascinated by watching the fans in the audience at Hanson shows because at first I thought the first few years I did this. And this is my fourth fourth year. I can't. It's so great that I'm admitting this in public. Um, the first few years I did this. I thought, okay, they're just, you know, looking at these boys because they're cute or they're attractive um, or, you know, they bring up some sort of nostalgia from when they were teenagers. And then the last couple of years, especially this year, I really started to see that Hanson's songs had a lot to do about fitting in, kind of setting aside the man and doing your own thing and not caring what anybody thinks. And for women, these shows are dominantly women. We have a joke that men play fantasy football in the back and women sit in the front. Uh, that For women, I think that's kind of a um, reassuring theme. Um, now, there's a lot of gendered connotations with that coming from a group of guys and being on stage and all of that. Um, but that's one example of where I think we have more layers to peel back and to look at uh, pop music in ways that maybe we haven't thought about them before. Yeah, well, um, I know in reading the book and speaking with you, um, I want to listen to more Tori Amos. So what should I be <laughs> listening to and what should uh, other listeners? I, you know, I, it's, it's so hard to say, you know, pick this and listen uh, because in my head, I hear Tori fans just, you know, yelling at me, pick this song, pick that song. Uh, from years of message boards and Facebook pages. But my thought is to start with Little Earthquakes, which was her first album from the early 90s. Uh, start there and to bookend it with her most recent, which is Unrepentant Geraldine's. Because you get sort of the evolution of a person in the early 90s. She was in her mid, mid to late 20s trying to figure out where she fits in life. And Unrepentant Geraldine's is very much about a woman who has passed 50 and is trying to understand her worth. And it's also kind of fighting against this notion that once you hit 50 and you're in entertainment, you just sort of fall off the map and you're done. Um, both of them are really kind of good soul-searching albums and a nice introduction. That said, uh, my favorite song is a song called Cooling. That is a B-side, and I don't mean to sound pompous in that sense that my favorite song is one that's so rare. <laughs> but she plays it live a lot. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, and it's a good kind of, I think, introduction to the way she writes in a poetic way. Yeah. Um, I know that you do uh, a lot of work. I've been very impressed looking at all that you do. Uh, what projects are you working on right now? So I just completed editing um, a book called Fangirls in Media, Creating Characters, Consuming Culture. And uh, Fangirls kind of looks at the notion of female fans and how they're consuming and why they're consuming the media that they're consume that they're uh, looking at or they're interested in. 
I have chapters in it. People wrote chapters. Um, there's a wonderful one on Star Trek, uh, the infamous uh, Carol Marcus underwear scene that caused a lot of controversy. Um, there's chapters in the book on video games and how that relates to kind of racial identity. There is stuff on um, pr- uh, consuming and buying products that celebrities sell. There's one on Sarah Jessica Parker creating a, fr- a fragrance line and the mass production of that. Uh, it's kind of an interesting book, and it it takes a discussion of fan culture maybe a little bit further um, in a dialogue that I think really needs to be happening. And uh, I have a, a theory book um, coming out next winter, a feminist theory um, book that I've worked on, feminist theory and pop culture. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Adrienne Trier-Benick, the author of Sing Us a Song, Piano Woman, Female Fans, and the Music of Tori Amos. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.